You are listening to Come Again. I am your host, George Mountford-Blake, and this is episode four, in which I bring my first guest expert to talk to you about marketing in stigmatized and scandalous niches. We are going to be talking to Kirsten of Launch and Scale because she has a lot of experience in launching and scaling products of all kinds, including those that have been perhaps more difficult to market for various reasons, such as the industry has a lot of stigma attached or there are restrictions around the ways in which the advertising can be done and what words and claims can be used. So Kirsten has a lot of examples to give us from breastfeeding niche to alternative supplements niche. And I'm just going to dive right into the show and let you listen to all of the genius that she brings. You really come again. again. Come, come again. again. Come, come again. again. You do what? Yeah. Come again. Kirsten, hello. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. I have been looking forward to this interview because we've had some talks re- recently when we were in Hawaii about some of the really interesting products you have had the honor of helping people launch. I think my listeners will be very interested to hear some of the things you have to share today. Kirsten is the founder of Launch and Scale, and yep. you have the product Launch Pad as your mastermind. That's right. Tell me a little bit about you and what you do. So I work with, well, me and the team, we work with product creators, meaning people that have a product that they want to bring to market. We help them launch and scale their storefront, basically meaning like setting up your own store on a domain that you own so you can build a brand. And we've done a lot of work with Kickstarter and crowdfunding launches in the past. So now we're focused more on the the larger brand building side of things for e-commerce companies. You switched from Kickstarter to Spotify. What did that journey look like? Yeah, so I love Kickstarter and launches. It's really the thing that got me online. And what I found was as good as we are at launches, as much as I love working with e-commerce brands, my passion is building brands, which means we needed more longevity in how long we were able to work with somebody for. So I think our switch from Kickstarter to mainly e-commerce came at a really good time because also Kickstarter is just in a bit of a shift where it's getting more specialized and way, way more niche and focused on who it can actually help really narrowed the scope on the products we could recommend going to Kickstarter. So it was kind of a mix of, all right, if we want to be able to have more impact, work with more brands and still be able to serve people that come to us that we love their product, but might not be a fit for Kickstarter. And if they are not a fit for Kickstarter, we now are able to say, we still help you. And here's the, here's the way we are doing that. So I think it's like, it was a personal reason, but also it just came at the right time where Kickstarter is making such a shift that I think it was really pigeonholing us. So it's not always a bad idea. There are times when launching on a crowdfunding platform is the right move. How, how should a business owner make that decision? So they should look at it based on a few things. If you are going to Kickstarter because you need the money, not want, but you need the money to pay for inventory, not a good move. Because first off, a Kickstarter campaign is where you launch your product on a kickstarter.com. You do a 30-day marketing campaign and people are able to pre-order your product. So then you take that money you pay for inventory and then customers get your products 
in a few months. That's really how crowdfunding it's, it's a small business funding essentially, mm -hmm. um, without needing to go after investment, et cetera. But in order for the Kickstarter model to work for you, you need to build up an audience ahead of time. You need to build an email list, build a social presence. And then when you bring that audience, you can be successful when you can prove to Kickstarter's algorithm that you have something that is, is successful and popular on their platform, then they essentially upvote you. And the better you do getting that audience to pre-order on your campaign, when you go live on Kickstarter, the better chances of you actually getting picked up by their community. So when you're making that decision on should you go to Kickstarter, it's about A, does your product fit in with what is currently working well? So tech, board games, so good, theater stuff, things that are novel and unique and different. I think that if you- My favorite, novel, unique, and different. Yeah. And I think that if you're launching another journal, you're launching another something, why are people going to buy on Kickstarter? You'll want to look at your product and make sure it fits what Kickstarter's community wants. The second thing is like, do you want to go spending $20,000 on building up a wait list before you go to launch to build up your thing? And if so, great. You can likely have a good high yield launch. Like you'll, you'll raise hundred K or whatnot doing that. A lot of brands after I walk them through, like, Ooh, I have to wait four months. I have to build up this list. I got to spend like 20 grand minimum building up that audience. Some brands are like, that's the price I'm willing to pay because I know we're going to go to raise a ton of capital because the product's the right fit. But then you have the other side of founders who are like, I just want to validate my product and I just want to start selling. Right. So in that case, I'd rather just see you take that 20K, build your storefront, drive traffic to get actual sales and do a pre-order campaign on your website. Uh, because then the flip, it's go to market a lot faster. It's getting orders a lot faster. And it's a lot less risky because you're spending money directly on customer acquisition versus building this big email list with a 50-50 chance it might not convert the way you want it to. So I like, I'll bring someone on a call and I'll say like, okay, here's the situation. Product can be a fit, but here's what you're trading. And I let them decide what they want. Amazing. I would like to ask you if Kickstarter is not the right fit and either they have a product already that's launched and they're trying to uh, sell more of it or yeah. they're brand new. Either way, what sorts of marketing strategies do you recommend for an e-commerce yeah. product? So to start, because we like we work with the very beginners that this is their first product. And we also work with Amazon sellers that have a lot of experience on that platform. But when it comes to building, uh, getting traffic to their own website, they're like, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? Mm -hmm. So either way, the beginning could be before you've made any sales, or it can also be like you're struggling. It's live. You've got a couple from friends and family, but you don't really know how to like go that next level. There are two ways that we recommend that you market. The way to scale a brand and have long-term viability and health is by doing both paid advertising and organic marketing. Mm -hmm. And I think that organic marketing has to come first to what I mean by organic is you're posting on social media. You're going live on Instagram. You're posting on TikTok. Mm -hmm. You are building your email list. Yeah. Building your email list. You're getting your product and influencer hands. You're looking at doing a press release. Like you're doing things to get your product out there. And then once you've got a certain amount of sales on the organic side, let's say you, you have like 10 or 15 sales and you're like, okay, I've validated this. The way we've been marketing so far has gotten some sales. People like it. Now I feel confident starting to spend a little bit of money and advertising. Mm -hmm. And that's where 
Facebook, Instagram advertising can be really good for you. You mentioned influencers and uh, I was scrolling through your podcast and you have an interesting one there about picking the best type of influencer for your product. Tell me more about that. So one audience building hack that I freaking love is OPA. It's other people's audiences. So the fastest way to build your audience is by collaborating with other brands and other influencers and other people that have a larger audience than you. And specific to influencer marketing, I love influencers because, and look, it's a game that's really hard and expensive to play, but influencer marketing is amazing because when you get an influencer with a social following, like Georgia, we'll take you, for example, you've got a couple thousand TikTok like subscribers right now. Mm -hmm. So when you rep a product, because you're, you as an influencer are saying, Hey, went to Starbucks and their coffee was delicious. That's a public endorsement, essentially a review from someone extremely credible. So having your product used by influencers and talked about by influencers is a way to automatically build trust and social proof, but you don't just want to work with any influencer. The influencers you pick need to be ones that have the same audience as you. So it makes sense. So good example, we worked with Series Chill. It's a breast milk chiller that allows you to pump on the go and keep your milk cold for up to 20 hours. Super important. But if Joe Rogan talks about that, it might not be a good fit versus an influencer that has had three young kids. They've gone through the breastfeeding process. They understand the struggles and really understand the product. And she goes and talks about this breast milk chiller. That's instant credibility. That's getting that message in front of an audience of moms, potentially. And that is how you want to do influencer marketing. Mm -hmm. So by being being picky with who you work with, you want to make sure that it's someone relevant to your audience. I see a problem with when business owners are trying to find influencers, it's like they can brainstorm you know, celebrities and, and huge figureheads that would probably cost a lot to get you running your yep. um, endorsement or really small local bloggers and they don't get a lot of traction from those. Yes. So do you recommend going through a service like a website, in, influencer hubs like that or trying to find the person one by one going through hashtags on Instagram? You know, how, how do they find these people? There are different ways to hire people. You can outsource to a company or a firm to find you the right influencers. That's expensive if you have a budget go for it. Number two, you can do it manually. So we've used influencers too internally. We've done it where we either get a VA to literally go through hashtags on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube search, and identify influencers in a certain niche talking about a topic. And based on criteria, like how many followers they have, contact information, et cetera, we're able to get a VA or someone on the team to make a, like a, a hit list essentially of people we want to reach out to. So that's one way to do that. It's very time consuming, but at least you're going through to make sure you're getting good quality. Yep. The other side of things is there are different platforms out there that are, can talent match you. So a good one, this isn't exactly influencer marketing, but it's billow.app where Billow will uh, match you with content creators to give you a video shout out for $59. So you, you pay five people $59 through this app, you send them the product and they do a product review. And that is another form of social proof. Influencers want to get paid a lot of money. I was surprised when you said 59. I was like, that's a lot. 
lower than the usual. The good thing is that they're not sharing it with their audience. It's just like, just oh, they just create it for you and then you can use, right? And that's where the expense comes in. Someone with a bigger following, you have to pay for the privilege to get in front of their audience. Exactly. So there are different methods out there. I think influencer marketing is a lot like it's just advertising. You don't know what's going to work for your product. So you just have to try. At the end of the day, it's really difficult. Like we have one client right now who's reached out to 25 people and she doesn't hear back. It's like, okay, well, we have to look into the pitch, the relevance and Mm. stuff like that. So I think that if you are just getting started and you do not have the budget, I would be sending product to as many qualified influencers as possible. Meaning you've sourced them you know they have between five and 25,000 people and they've replied to you saying, yeah, we'd be interested in checking out your product. Then just send them the product for free. Don't ask them anything, just see if they use it. Yeah, because a couple of things will happen. They either don't like your product and they don't post or they love your product and they will post. We had one camp stove we launched out of New Zealand and the founder, he, he reached out to like a few YouTube influencers, some of them that got like millions of views on their videos. And Nathan heard back, he got on a call with this guy. And like, because the YouTuber, the message and what Nathan was doing with his product, he got out mentioned on the show that got over a million views. Mm -hmm. So it can happen, but it's just about like, what can you do to make sure that you're getting it from the right person? Is yeah, there a yeah. mission behind it that they just would love and they'll just like bypass the the post? But then there's the other side where if you want to get an influencer to post, the easiest thing to do is to pay the influencer because it's just, it's transactional at that point. But even then, if you pay an influencer, know that you'll want to essentially pay 10 influencers as testing grounds to mm-hmm. see likely one of those influencers will produce. And then you'll know in the future, again, you just have to kind of test their audiences to see if they are receptive to buy. I'm assuming it works differently when you do want to get the big names, the celebrities. I saw something on your podcast about how to get your product into the hands of people like like Lively. Tell me what that looks like. I think it was an interview with Sarah Shaw that we had. She's awesome. She focuses on celebrity gifting and getting in magazines and stuff like that. So what she recommends doing is reaching out and sending product as much as possible, but it's not about focusing on the A-list celebrity. It's, it's about focusing on like the D and C celebrities to get in there. And you never know sometime if assuming it's relevant and you've picked the right celebrity, sometimes you will show up on a magazine. A little bit like the spaghetti on the wall thing. Like you just throw enough and something will stick. Yeah. Cause it's funny because you, when entrepreneurs look at, oh, how should I market my company? And they read about like the allure of Facebook ads or influencer marketing. No, marketers are like, oh, it's so easy. You just got to do the thing. And so entrepreneurs go in thinking, great. And then they pitch five people and don't hear back. And it's like, why is this so hard? It must be me. But actually it's just, it's really hard and it takes a lot of grit and a lot of perseverance and you will get it. All it takes is one influencer, but it's a bit of a nightmare process. And I, I suppose that's why, I, to your point, marketers saying it's easy. It's it's more so that there's a repeatable system and it's going to work at some point, but you have to have the money, the time or the effort. And yeah. sometimes it makes sense to pay an agency to take care of that for you, or you can do it yourself. You can do the legwork, make it happen. Yeah, because unfortunately, a marketer that's like, oh, influencer marketing. Look at all this press that gets people in. And then they're like, oh, reality check. 
So there's a little bit of wishful thinking maybe with how easy it is to launch a product. Okay, let's talk about some of the products you have launched. I want to know what are the the weirdest or most controversial. Have you had any products that had some backlash? Oh yeah. Let's hear about those. Where do we start? So I think the, okay, let's start with my favorite. It's, have you heard of Pavlock before? Yes. Okay. Is that the, um, like the watch that like zaps you for a habit? So we launched the shock clock, the shock clock with Pavlock, like back in 2017, I think. And at this point, Pavlock is a wearable that helps you break bad habits. And specifically this one helps shock you out of bed in the morning. So you can get out of bed, like from the threat of electric shock. That's how the psychology of Pavlock works. If you're about to do a habit, for example, if you're getting a craving to smoke and you're trying to quit smoking, you can set it so that through hand motion, it's going to see, ah, oh, you're about to do the thing. It'll like vibrate as a warning for you to stop. So it literally is like a shock collar for habits. And this one for the shock clock is all about getting out of bed early because when you set the alarm, you can set it to shock you, right? So the shock clock was super interesting because um, A, it's a polarizing product. It was so easy to get into Forbes for that or like New York Times because it was like, hey, the bracelet that literally shocks you out of bad habits. Like it's- What a headline, you know, who can resist that? Yeah. So we, he got some really great press on it, but the backlash we got is like, he went on Shark Tank. And I don't know if you saw that episode, but he went on and Manish just comes off a little arrogant. He's a great guy, but he comes off a little arrogant. And on the show, he was like pitching and they were kind of into it. And then he finally got an offer from Mr. Wonderful. And Manish was like, Meh, kind of dodging it. And then at the end, he's like, sorry, Mr. Wonderful. I would literally take an investment from anybody here. And then Mr. Wonderful's like, have you any lost his shit? The hate messages that came out of that, Manish like, buried his head in the sand for three days and mm. I was getting death threats for Manish in my DMs I was like how do you know I'm working with them that was like and what do you think about no press is bad press does that apply I do, here? I do believe any press is good press because it keeps you relevant and it keeps people talking about you but then okay there is a caveat like if you are caught for murdering someone for sex trafficking you're caught for something real bad that's not good press that's literal career ending but i think if you get bad press because of a shark tank level thing or you said something that offended a founder or you have a very controversial viewpoint on something and you get a lot of hate i think stuff like that really helps the brand but i, I want to just hear you say again that last thing if you have a, an opinion that gets a lot of hate that's actually a positive thing, is it for? Exactly. Yes, because it's polarizing. This is what we do in marketing. We try to create conversation. Exactly. So, people, so what I think my listeners need to hear is don't be afraid to, to stand your ground and state your case. If you have a belief, if you want to push boundaries or change norms or disagree with big names, that's that isn't something to avoid just because you're afraid of the backlash like the backlash is coming but that's a good thing you're you're building an audience doing the magnetize and repel right you want yeah. to attract only the kinds of people that are raving fans and to that point we're doing a press release to stand up against kickstarter and in it's because a, a video i did went fairly viral in our circles it's i'm leaving kickstarter on my channel, but I, with that, I was like, Ooh, I should do a press release on, because there's a lot of like 
conversation that's not being made public about the viability of Kickstarter as the launch model and all the things. So anyway, I, I called one of my friends who's writing the press release and I was like, Hey, I want to do this thing, but I'm really scared that it's going to hit, it's going to look bad on my brand. And he's like, I think this is the perfect topic. Um, paraphrasing of course, but he's like, if you're not polarizing, if you don't stand for something and piss people off, you're not going to be memorable. Oh, and I was yeah. like, well, there you go. You have right. to take a stand. Yes. So get, get your you armor on, go for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Let, let's hear about another one. You mentioned before the breast milk chiller. Yes. How did that one go on uh, Kickstarter? Indiegogo actually, but good. About 350 customers from that with about 32,000 sold on Indiegogo, which is great. It was a smaller campaign. She has had most of her success after. And then from that, she's now a seven figure brand in her space uh, about 18 months later. So she did really well. And this is an example <laughs> of another polarizing niche. Like a lot of people, there's so many different opinions about whether you should or shouldn't breastfeed for how long should you pump? There's just this kind of inbuilt Sigma. engagement that's going to happen. And mm -hmm. uh, with Lisa, like she didn't go, cause I, I think there's different levels of polarizing. You could be like, you could really lean into it and get all like I believe and just get all up in people's faces about it. But Lisa had a, at the time, and this was changed in medical textbooks, thankfully, but at the time of her coming out with the breast milk chiller, moms are really split because the old science in the medical text said that if you cannot chill breast milk, if you do, it's going to break down the proteins and be just bad for the baby. But then the other side is like, well, science has proven that chilling your breast milk is okay up to a certain period of time. So it cleared Lisa, but right up until that point on ads, on emails, whatever, comments online, there's one half of moms that are like, this is great. And the other half are like, you're killing our babies. Like mm. really in her face, like she launches on Amazon and gets two one-star reviews right away because, and they're of two non-customers that are just totally against her product because the science was not up to date. Thankfully, about 12 months ago, that rule was changed and she, I think, helped get it overturned by bringing it to medical professional attention, but now it's safe. But leading up to that, she got a lot of backlash because of like outdated whatever. And she countered that by bringing in some top lactation consultants to help like advise, to help create content for her audience, help educate and inform and handle that direct topic with anyone who like came into her email list. So she, before it became safe in people's eyes, she had a lot, a bit of an uphill battle and dealing with that head on. Okay. Which helped. I, I like, I love, she took the chance to educate her audience and create content around it. I mean, this effectively sounds like any battle against misinformation. And this, this can be in any industry. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of misconceptions are mm -hmm. out there about your product or your mission or, you know, whatever it may be a cause, for example, not even a physical product, but there's still so much contention over whether this is the best method or, or whatever it is. If it's whatever. So when this happens, would you say, lean into it and try to be louder than the naysayers. Just keep pushing out the positive message. Yes. I dealt with this. One of our students has launched a pre-workout, a clean pre-workout, which means minimal ingredients. So 
he starts advertising his product and he's getting hate for people who don't like pre-workouts because they have this belief that you either shouldn't be caffeinated going into going into workouts or some other beliefs. And he's like, oh my God, I got so much hate for my product. Like, am I, should I not be doing this? I'm like, mm. no, this is gold. And here's why. He has come to market with a new solution. He saw an opportunity for a cleaner pre-workout with better quality ingredients. So out of a need in his own life, he's like, I, I feel this is a thing. I feel like other people believe me. But the problem with something like that is that you have to educate and inform. And by getting that much hate on the idea is an opportunity to dig in and use that to educate on a new, better way. It's like Dave Asprey with Bulletproof. His supplements were all about how to have just better clarity. For him, it's like, who puts butter in their coffee? Like, that's so freaking weird. And now he's created a whole line of like coconut extracted superfood whatevers. And he's created a cult following where in the beginning he had this new idea and he experimented and he had like proof that this thing would work, but you have all these people he was fighting against, like, that's bad. Mm. That's not going to work. This is weird. This is a new idea. I don't like it. And he had to literally push up against that to eventually flip people's belief system. And that is what you have to do with educating on new products. And so that backlash is something that I think you have to lean into as a way to understand what needs to be communicated better, differently, or maybe is there a marketing angle there that you can lean into? Okay. I want to ask you now about what your advice would be to businesses that have borderline products that are going to face up against platform restrictions. Like there are a lot of sort of loopholes uh, to jump through if you're selling adult products, uh, CBD, these things are allowed. Like sex toys, for example, the first time I was scrolling through Shopify's guidelines at first glance, that looked like an immediate no-no. But the more I dig, there's actually a blog post from Shopify itself on how to sell sex toys online. So what's your advice to a business in that kind of space for a launch strategy. I had a conversation with someone yesterday who is launching a product that he he wants to help people grow more cannabis. And I was like, okay, so we can't do Facebook ads. We can't do Google ads. Shopify is kind of weird with their payment processors for allowing merchant services with illegal Mm. things. And because cannabis right now is not legal globally, there's just a lot of restrictions to selling cannabis. So I was like, Look, it depends as a business owner what you want to do. Do you want to lead that you are a cannabis brand or do you want to do some kind of backdoor marketing where we, like the first thing that someone sees when they see this is herbs and spices, grow herbs and spices at home, but they know this is for cannabis. So you can take, essentially take like a similar thing and then let people fill in the blank. You can do that. It kind of insinuates what you're doing. It sounds a lot like some ads I screenshotted the other day of pelvic muscle enhancers. It's a sex toy, but it's for incontinence. It's like to increase your pelvic muscles and that kind of thing. You know, use this. It comes with an app so you can see how strong you're clenching and gamified it so you can have your goals each week. And that is running. Those ads are on Facebook, literally with women sitting on a bed holding it like it. But because the copy is talking about that 
the medical angle, there's that's your in. You know, you're finding a way, much like the herbs and spices, that's adjacent, that's a bit more innocent. You could also go so far as like if you're doing a launch for a sex toy and Kickstarter, you can do that, right? But launch for a sex toy. But let's just say you want to just go straight to your website. What you can do is build a wait list of people who have downloaded a free guide to improving intimacy. Mm-hmm. And then once they're on your email list, you say, by the way, we have this other thing that we're really excited about launching. Would you like to learn more? And then you start educating that way. Yes. Marketing on the back end after you attract your ideal client, find this sounds even similar to influencer strategy. Find a person that your audience would like. This is find a product or a conversation point that your audience would like. You're kind of just going one step removed and you're still reaching the people who are in your target audience. And then there's always like, you can't, and I have no experience doing this, but you could try Pornhub. You can try Uporn, try those to do digital marketing on that. You can go into industry specific magazines. Yeah. You can get onto podcasts that talk about how people can just be more free sexually in the bedroom. Like there's mm-hmm. so many podcasts that's kind of free talk that. So it's just like, you can't go straight into it with Facebook ads. There are other ways that brands have built multi, multi, multi-million dollar successes off of other industry marketing. So mm-hmm. really just to think outside the box, where is your customer? What do they engage with? And then how can you kind of tap into that? And what if we're thinking not so much about the marketing, but the logistics of actually your product, a payment provider, you mentioned before that, you know, some of them are funny about what's considered legal. What jurisdiction are you under? Is it where your business is registered or is it where that platform is based, you know, their servers and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of gray area there. Hmm. I'm, I'm assuming the answer here is going to be go with a big name that you know is doing it like Shopify for example is selling sex toys that's going to be an easier path than you trying to launch on your own website and figure out which payment providers are okay and blah 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 but what's what do you think about when it comes to the logistics of selling this kind of stuff so I think we went to sell a product that had a cannabis element to it a couple of years ago And at the time, Shopify was like, we're just not going to let you sell on our platform. Things may have changed. Uh, Again, cannabis is not really my area of expertise. But if you look through the payment processor guideline, what is accepted and you see, ooh, cannabis not accepted, you can always email them and ask permission. Mm. Why not? Just say like, hey, we're selling pipes that people can use for tobacco which is a proof substance, can you make an exception for us? I would rather ask for permission in that point versus being like, well, the rules say this and we're not really cannabis, but we're going to launch anyway and then have them shut you down because that's yeah. not. Because that's painful after you put all that money behind it, right? <laughs> exactly. So I would just, I would look at the top payment processors, look at their guidelines, ask permission, see if you can get a green light and start that way. Have you ever seen that happen? That they have put all their eggs in one basket and something terrible has gone wrong. Like PayPal, like it it was a, it's so stupid. It's the product is a game that you can use to have your kids eat more vegetables at dinner. And this does not sound controversial at all. PayPal was like, oh no, we're not, we're not going to be your merchant because we think you've, you violated our guidelines. This happens sometimes accidentally. Anyone who has done ads here knows that. So in that case, she had 
shop pay, like Shopify payments enabled on our website. So it wasn't the end of the world. So if you number one, have a backup, have more than one source to accept revenue. Because it's even better for your customers that way to give them more options of like getting points or paying through Apple Pay or Google Pay or PayPal. When you mentioned PayPal, alarm went off in my brain. Often what happens is business owners have their account frozen so they can't even make transactions out so their money is like locked with PayPal, which is quite scary. But with these kinds of things, the message that I want to emphasize is that you can't 100% protect yourself from this never happening to you. But what you can do is protect yourself from when it does happen, you have a backdoor, a, you know, a contingency. Does that mean, do I have to have a whole other storefront? Nope. No. I think you should put everything on Shopify. It's more of the payment processors. If you are selling something completely illegal on Shopify, they likely can shop you down, uh, shop you down. Because- <laughs> Because they, like they host your website, right? So I think in terms of success online, I believe that you should diversify your revenue streams so that you sell on Amazon, you sell on walmart.com, retail, et cetera, because it just gets you in front of a wider audience. So two birds, one stone. You're protecting yourself, but hey, you're also getting a wider audience. So why not? Exactly. I spent some time this morning looking at bizarre products that have been on Kickstarter or Shopify or whatever. So I want to share a couple of the, the, the that I found. Let's do it. There's a, a potato salad. This one was ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Have you had the potato salad one? It's one of the most, it was basically a guy, I don't know if the intention was a joke, but like back in 2012, when Kickstarter, people were literally like throwing money at anyone with a good idea back yeah. then. Yeah. For him, he's like, oh, make the world's best potato salad. And it was such, it's like a viral joke because for a dollar pledge, you're able to unlock the world's best potato salad. And it's now like a joke in the Kickstarter community. Mm-hmm. There you go. Cat erotica calendar was another one that I thought was a little interesting. I might've talked to that team or there was, um, really wanted to do a cat style calendar. And it was like one of those, like, I saw this one. I was like, how do you even have cat erotica? What is, I mean, I guess there's, there's, this is a perfect example where it's going to make some people think, oh my goodness, no, that's like, we can't have, you know, animal porn, what? When you actually look at it, they're just funny pictures of cats. Cats with the hat on the bed. That's right. So it's just, it's a, it's a gimmick. It's a joke, but it's going to create that. I'm going to ask you one or two more things. Mm-hmm. What's some of the biggest mistakes you see people making when they're trying to bring a product to market? What should we avoid doing? My number one rule is sell before build. Sell before build. Mm-hmm. Big mistake is that people think because they have a good idea or because they designed an idea to solve a need in their life that everyone's going to want it. Even if you get good feedback from your mom, you should not buy inventory until you've got concrete, hard proof that the market wants what you're selling. You don't want to be the guy that's like, I have 5,000 units of this weird thingamajig in my basement that my wife hates me for, and we have 20 grand in it, but I can't sell it because mm-hmm. no one wants it. You never want to be that person. And I think people get the wrong impression sometimes. We see some really strange things on Wish, on the Facebook ads, like what a weird Wish product. So perhaps there's this impression that anything can sell. But that's not necessarily true. You need to validate your product. Validate your product. How do you do that? I like to keep it really simple where, uh, I mean, there's, there's different ways to do it, but essentially you want to 
take your, let's take a game, for example, you have a card game that you've developed. What I would do is if it's a game for whiskey drinkers and every week you hang out with your whiskey buddies, validate with them or get Mm -hmm. a big group together and do it kind of like a Tupperware party. You're like, Hey guys, I want to bring this thing to market, but uh, I only have 10 to start with because I bought 10 prototypes. I'm selling them for 50 bucks each. Who wants? That's like one super easy. It goes straight to the customer. Find people in your actual network that you know in flesh and blood and ask them what they think of it. Aren't they going to be overly nice though? People that we know? It depends. Yes, if it's close friends and family, they will. So if you can get a sample size that's 10 people where you have friends that have brought something, you can see if it's a pity buy or if they're legitimately excited about it. Okay. Like, do they feel obligated to buy it or if they're like, no, this is actually pretty cool and I'm, I'm happy to support this. So mistake number one, sell before build, always validate your product first. Any other mistakes we should watch out for? Be open to being wrong all the time. So That's hard yeah. sometimes because I think often we've put so much behind our vision. Like we've like, this is the way, this is the product, this is the answer. And sometimes yeah. it isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just, um, I was recording a bunch of Facebook training modules this morning. And big thing I kept saying in that is like, look, you're going to go into Facebook advertising or any advertising with an idea of who you think your customer is, what video you think is going to go viral and what interests or copy or headlines you think is going to do the work. More often than not though, you're wrong 95% of the time and you're not actually going to get the results that you want right away. Like I've had so many conversations with people where it's like, I, I've advertised for a week. I spent a hundred dollars. I got a thousand people to my website and I got no sales. I think that means people don't want my product. And I'm like, no, that's not it at all. It's because you put a test out there. You're wrong about your assumptions and you now have to dig into what's going to work. So right. I think there's a lot of mistakes layered in there with like a thinking to thinking it should be easier misreading what the data means and not really knowing the value of a testing system because it's going to take three months to start to get traction with ads but no one talks about that I know usually when I mention that on a call you see the kind of the flicker in the eyes like wait what Hmm?" so uh, when when something doesn't sell what you said about misinterpreting data the assumption is often oh no this isn't going to work at all. This is a failure. I've made a terrible mistake, but really perhaps it's no, you positioned it. You know, you targeted this group of people, but then you started talking about this other thing on your landing page. And, you know, there are things like that, that a marketer can help you tweak. Like just last week, one of our students, one a week with ads, I've gotten no sales. He's like, man, like, I don't know what I'm doing. So then we dug in with him and that next week after a couple of tweaks on the ad side and to his website, six sales in one week. So it's like, I think it's just, it's a bit of inexperience. It's a bit of thinking it's going to be easier than it is. And also just, you just, you have to have thick skin and you have to go in knowing you're probably going to be wrong, but paying attention to the data is going to point you in the direction of like who that person is that will buy and what message is going to work. Well, at least that's one thing I can say for thick skin is something most of us have had to grow already. So awesome. Thank you so much, Kirsten. You've given some amazing tips. I'm so, so glad to have had you too. I know, so fun. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about all the stuff you do? Our main hub is going to be launchandscale.co. There you can find 
YouTube channel, blogs, resources, etc. And we do have a mentorship program if someone is looking to have success with their e-commerce brand, either from day one with launch or scaling things up, go there and see. But I, I think that um, the best place to get started is just go to my YouTube channel. We have like over a hundred videos. So there's lots you can go through. Amazing. Well, I know what I'm doing at lunchtime. Yay. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're welcome. That was Kirsten Ross of Launch and Scale. She has a podcast by the same name. So go and check that out on Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts if you'd like to hear more about all of the wonderful ways that she launches and scales products and see what you can learn from her experience. I've been your host, Georgia Mountford-Blake. I am your tech and marketing strategist to all industries, scandalous and stigmatized. I love working with business owners who are pushing for social change, who are making a difference in the world and who might be struggling to do so because of loopholes and hoops to jump through and censorship to deal with and all of the other fun challenges that we face when we are on the front lines of making the world a better place. If you think you would like my help, I'd love to hear from you. If you think that you have something to offer my listeners, I would also love to hear from you. So please head on over to radiogmo.net if you would like to apply to be on the show or if you have an idea for a guest that you would like me to interview. Let me know and I'll see you next episode. Come again, I'm again, a podcast from Radio Gmo.